Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. This miracle of Jairus' daughter is a continuation of last week's miracle, which is the woman with the issue of blood. And as we read through the Bible, one thing to note is we can read through the Bible and we can say, wow, what a great story. What a great thing that Jesus did. He healed the woman. And then he goes and he heals Jairus' daughter. That's a great story. Jesus is all-powerful. Then close our Bible and walk away. That's one way of doing it. Or you could understand that God wrote this Bible. God wrote this book. And the order of things, all the way down to the order of the words, is God's writing, is God's inspiration to tell us something. And this is a unique miracle set. It is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and so I think the gospel writers understood what was going on here. And back in seminary, we would look at this. One of the assignments was to look at this and figure out, apart from the stories of the healings, was God telling us something more? Was God telling us something different than just the miracles. And one thing that this passage tells us is that there are two miracles and we can, as they said when you were back in school, you compare and contrast. You look at what is similar and you look at what is different and you will see that something is being told here and we shall see what that is. First of all, there are two miracles. That is a similar thing. Jairus' daughter is one, and the woman who had an issue of blood. If you look through this, you see the number 12 comes up. Jairus' daughter was 12 years of age. The woman had the disease for 12 years. Jairus had 12 years of joy, of anticipation, He truly loved his daughter, so you can imagine how he felt or was when his daughter was born. He was probably overjoyed because he wants to keep his daughter and loves his daughter dearly, such that he's willing to, in many ways, sacrifice everything by coming and falling down at the feet of Jesus for keeping her alive. And so Jairus's trajectory for 12 years was advancing, was growing, was good. There was better, better every day as his daughter was growing into a woman, while the uh, woman with the issue of blood had 12 years of pain and misery. She had no expectation of getting healed. In fact, it said that over the 12 years, as people were giving her remedies, She was getting worse. So her trajectory was downward for 12 years. 
Jairus's trajectory was upward for 12 years. Jairus's, Jairus, Jairus was at the top of his religious experience, of his relationship with God. He was the head of a synagogue. He had people that worked for him. He was considered by those who were around him as a holy and righteous man who had been advanced to that position because of his relationship and understanding of the Bible and of God. The woman was declared unclean and not allowed to participate in the various religious festivals. She couldn't even participate in the annual Passover because of her uh, issue of blood. The, the uncleanness that was applied to her meant that while her family was doing the Passover in the family room, in the dining room, she had to be outside. She couldn't participate in the same room as her family, so her religious experience was the worst it could be. She was understood to be rejected or cursed by God. Jairus was considered to be like tight with God. She was considered God had rejected you by doing this to you. Kind of a punishment for her sins was probably how it was seen. Jairus was rich and connected. We looked through the Gospels and in Luke, it said he had uh, the, 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 the whalers, the mourners, moved from room to room. He had a multiple room house. Your average person, if you or I lived back then, we would have a one room house. We would have a room where everybody would sleep together, everybody would eat together. If there was bread that had to be made or things like this, that happened in that same room. It was a one room house building usually with a second floor. Jairus had multiple rooms on the ground floor, it seems to indicate, so he had money. He was, he was a, a, you know, a man of means. And in his position, people would make sure that he had enough money as a reward for his godliness. The woman, it said, uh, spent all she had she was literally broke. She had no money left. And so Jairus is over here with everything he wants. He just buys it. And this woman has nothing. She probably only owned the clothes that were on her back at that time. She had nothing to go back to if Jesus rejected her. And so when you look at these two things, what is being said? Why is this in the Bible? And I think what it's being said, and you can uh, come to your own conclusions about this, but you have two people that are in that culture, the polar opposites in wealth, in social standing, in religious standing, in societal standing, the exact opposites. If you put them next to each other and people would look at them, they would see Nothing that they had in common. They were so separated because of their situation and because of the culture, uh, they had nothing in common. And Jesus, going to the rich connected guy's daughter, interrupts himself and heals the rejected woman. 
When Jesus is interacting with people, social standing means nothing. Money means nothing. Perceived closeness with God means nothing. The size of your house means nothing. What happens and what matters in this passage is your need. Jesus came for two reasons. First and foremost, the first by a long shot. He came to save us from our sins. Okay? If all he did was that, that'd be fine. But he also came to alleviate suffering. Jesus Christ knows what the perfect world is supposed to be. Jesus Christ was there in the Garden of Eden. He saw it. He saw how Adam and Eve were created. He created Adam and Eve, and he said, go do this. And they said, I don't want to. And it's all downhill from there. And so Jesus knows perfection versus what we've done to this world. And he came to alleviate that suffering. And there's indications that Jesus healed everybody that came to him when he opened himself to that. For example, at Peter's mother-in-law house, he stayed up all night. And if you could get to Jesus, your suffering would have been healed. And I guarantee you, there was not an application process for people of the right pedigree or people of the right financial standing. We are all lost we are all suffering, and Jesus fixes that. That is why Jesus came. And so the story of Jairus' daughter, Jesus gets off the boat, as we saw last week. He's teaching, he's healing, and Jairus comes and pushes his way through the crowd. This very connected, this very nice dressed, this probably rich person pushed through the crowd, bowed down to Jesus and begged him to come and heal his daughter and says, lay your hands on her so that she will live. This implies that she had had a sickness that perhaps had gone on for a period of time. We don't know how long. And she was getting worse and worse and worse. And Jairus probably tried all the physician stuff, the doctor stuff of the day, and finally went to Jesus and said, come and heal my daughter. Jesus gets interrupted. And during the interruption, Jairus' daughter dies. And in 35, as he's done with the woman with the issue of blood in Mark 535, people come and say, why trouble the teacher anymore? Your daughter has died. And this shows a mindset that Jairus and his people, uh, this is another evidence of his wealth, he seemed to have servants, okay? The woman with the issue of blood clearly had no servants. It takes money to have servants. And so Jairus had people who came from his house and traveled and said, why bother the teacher anymore? In other words, I know what's going on here. It's too late. Jesus didn't get here in time. The daughter is dead. And there's nothing that can be done. Okay? That's their 
human understanding. Jesus could have fixed it if she was still breathing, but she has stopped breathing, she is dead. Jesus cannot fix that. That's their view. And so Jesus keeps walking and says to Jairus, don't be afraid, but keep believing. And in this sentence, we see the, the relationship of fear and of faith. And you can see it as a, as a teeter-totter or as a continuum or whatever. It is a zero-sum calculation. In other words, if I have full faith, I will have zero fear. If I have all the fear I can muster, it means I have zero faith. Most people there and here today are somewhere in the continuum, depending on what the situation is. We have some fear and we have some faith. And the more the faith grows, the more the faith shrinks. Okay? You cannot have 100% faith and 100% fear. Okay? That's not how the, the spirit works. You have one or the other and you have kind of a teeter-totter, I guess is the best way, that somewhere in the balance between faith and fear. And what we want is 100% faith and zero fear. Okay? And someday we'll have that. But right now, yeah, it's the human condition. And so they arrive at Jairus' house, and he goes into the inner room with only Peter, James, and John, and the parents, okay? Everybody else stays outside. And he goes into the girl's room, and what does he see? He sees a great commotion. It says in verse 38, And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now, Ancient funerals were much different than modern funerals. There was a memorial service for Winnie Emery here on Friday, and it was a introspective, it was a solemn occasion. We understand the sadness and the grieving, and it was a chance for people to remember her life and her life in Christ. But we didn't have a band and we weren't loud. And if an ancient Jewish person walked in, they would say, you really didn't love her. You don't miss her. Because the way their culture was, they would judge how much you missed somebody and how much you loved somebody by how loud you were and how many people were loud. And so people who knew this, in every situation, if, you, if, if the government creates a law, if somebody sets something up, there will always be somebody who will figure it out and work the system. We'll say, this is a great way to make a million bucks, and they, they work through what's happening. And so a cottage industry of professional whalers and professional mourners grew up so that this person, Jairus, who had money, could go out to your local talent agency and hire and say, I need 35 mourners, okay? 
The other thing that they would have, and this became part of the Jewish tradition, and has actually been written down today, that if you get a Talmud, which is the Old Testament plus commentary about how to live out the Old Testament, it would say in the commentary, you have to have flute players, flautists as they're called, and wailers and mourners, and these are the things that prove that you miss somebody. And so, if you, uh, so poor people, if you're a poor person and you say, well, my, my mother died, but I'm a poor person, the law makes allowance for that, it says you are properly mourning her if you get one female whaler and two flute players. So you get those three people, and that is obeying the tradition law, the oral law that the Jews came up with, and people would look at that and go, yes, you truly did miss her. Now what Jairus is trying to do in the culture is he's trying to get a loud enough noise that people three or four blocks over would hear this, would hear the flutes, would hear the wailing, would hear the wah, all the stuff that's going on, and people would go, oh yes, Jairus truly loved his daughter. That was their response. That was their understanding. It's so loud, you could hear it in the next county. The next county would say, oh yes, Jairus really loved his daughter. That is just the culture of this. Now, additionally, not only do you have to hire whalers and flute players, you have to tear your clothes. If you tear your clothes, then people will look at you and say, ah, you really loved your daughter. Now, the Talmud lists 39 different ways to tear your clothes. Okay, Because if there was an idea the Jewish people would codify it, okay? For a funeral, you had to tear your clothes above your heart, okay? You had to tear it right here. And so what people would have is they would prepare their clothes by cutting a little star shape above their heart and then loosely sewing it so that you could, with very little effort, tear it exactly where you're supposed to tear it and then everybody would look at that and say, ah, Jairus truly loved his daughter because he's tearing his clothes, he's tearing it above his heart, which the law says is what you do at a funeral. Okay? And so things are going on, and Jairus is obeying the oral tradition. He is doing exactly what is expected of him to show to the world out there that he loved his daughter which is fine. We don't say, oh, that's phony. We don't say, oh, that's fake. He had rules in society that said, you do this if you love your daughter. He loves his daughter, so he does this. So Jesus comes, and Jesus does not criticize the wailers. He says, when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. So he doesn't say this is a stupid tradition. Jesus understands that this is how society is. And he operates within that. And instead of saying this is a stupid tradition, he says you're out of place. 
You're wailing and you're playing the flute and you're tearing your clothes, but she's not dead, she's asleep. Why did Jesus say that? Was she dead? By all measures of humanity. She didn't fog a mirror. She didn't have a heartbeat, okay? She was dead as far as science could tell us, okay? But Jesus never, ever, 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 when he raises people from the dead, Lazarus, the son at Nain, this girl, he always says they're asleep. What does that mean? Sleep is a temporary situation. Sleep is a, uh, it's okay. If, if you say, I'm going to go home and take a nap, okay? We would say, good, you know, it's healthy to sleep. We think it's healthy to sleep. And so it's a good thing. And for somebody who understands how the spirit realm works, if you pass away, you are just asleep. Because if you're a believer in Christ, there will come a day when Jesus Christ will return and raise you from the dead. You will be resurrected. And in the 10,000, 100,000 years from now, when you remember this short time that your spirit was separated from your body, it will seem like sleep. It'll be a temporary thing. It'll be something that we won't even think about once we're in heaven with God, this death that we supposedly went through. And so Jesus understanding how the spirit realm works, always calls death sleeping. Paul does the same thing. First and second Thessalonians, he says, a lot of the people that I taught are still alive, but many have fallen asleep. Okay? We know that to mean temporarily dead. They're dead now, but when Jesus Christ returns and raises them from the dead... They will be alive again. And so Jesus not only knows what he's about to do, but he knows the spirit realm says this girl is just sleeping. Death is just a temporary state. When, when I do funerals, I go through the verses that say, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? We don't fear death because we look at this and we go, Oh, yeah. Death is just a temporary thing. It is nothing that we have to fear if we are in Christ. And so what do the professional mourners do? They laugh at him. Why do they laugh at him? Because they knew the science. They knew the truth. They were professionals about funerals. They had been to maybe a hundred funerals. They knew exactly how this is supposed to go. And Jesus was not obeying the rules Jesus was not doing what they wanted him to do. Jesus was not obeying their rules. And so they laugh him and they mock him, saying, he doesn't know what's going on. He's crazy in the head. Probably what they thought when they laugh at him, when they mock somebody like that. They're saying that they're, they're, they don't understand. Okay, They have a lack of understanding. And so Jesus pushes them outside, and they seem to go. He says, he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother 
And so they, they didn't fight him. They said, yeah, whatever, and they left, okay? They probably took their pay and left. And so you have Peter, James, and John and the parents. And there's the daughter that is dead on the table. And he took her by the hand and says, Talitha Kumi. Okay, Talitha Kumi is Aramaic. Aramaic was the street language of the day. Everybody who walked around would speak uh, Aramaic. If they were in the marketplace to foreigners, they would speak Greek. If they were in the temple or the synagogue doing worship, they would speak Hebrew. But if I'm just talking with you at the local Starbucks, we would speak Aramaic. The average Jewish person was raised knowing three languages. Okay? It's just how the world worked. And so Talitha Kumi, Talitha means little one or little lamb. It says it's translated a little girl, but it can also mean little lamb. And if you look at this from Jesus' point of view... Jesus created this girl, okay, from scratch, exactly the way he wanted. She's not an accident. She is a creation of Jesus Christ. And he sees her broken. He sees something that shouldn't be this way, something that is apart from the design, something that has been put in there by Satan Messing up the world, okay? And why do we have death today? We have death today because Satan messed up the world and we sin and boom, we get death. But it's not how it's supposed to be. People are not supposed to die. Eventually, we will get into a place where we don't, okay? But right now, everything's broken. And Jesus looks at this and it's a very tender thing to call her Talitha. A very caring thing to call her Talitha, like she is his own daughter. And so he says, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And boom, immediately she gets up. No recovery, no physical therapy, whatever the disease was, we don't know. The symptom was she died but we don't know the root cause. Jesus knew the root cause. Jesus fixed the root cause. Jesus caused her spirit to go back into her body because Jesus can do that, okay? And he raised her from the dead. It then says that she got up and walked, and the evidence of being alive is walking here. And then it says, for she was 12. It kind of gives that, that she should have the ability to walk. She wasn't one and a half, okay? If she got up and walked at one and a half, we go, ah, that's interesting. But she's 12. She is a walking person. And so she get up and she walked, and Jesus said, do not tell anybody. Jesus is going eventually to the cross, but it seems to be Jesus is trying to delay the cross until he is ready. And if the word spread that he is raising kids from the dead, the priest would come arrest him and stone him, probably there. But he has a plan, he has movements to make, and he's going to go to the cross in his time. He then says, give her something to eat. And commentators have looked at that and said that it's interesting that Jesus had to tell them. They were probably so amazed 
you had this daughter brought back to life who was probably very hungry. If she had been sick for a period of time, perhaps she hadn't had a full meal in a month or so. And so if she's back to life fully healed, back everything perfect the way it should be, she was probably very hungry. And so Jesus, taking care of her even at this point, says, I know you're amazed, I know this is amazing, but go ahead and feed her, bring food to her. And that is another sign of her at life. And so Jesus does not um, pick people based on anything that we do. Jesus is not impressed by our lives, okay? Jesus comes and in his will, when he wants to, at his good pleasure, he alleviates our suffering. He accepts all who come for the forgiveness of sins. The offer to get forgiveness of sins and eternal life is wide open. Anybody can come. Okay, and anybody can come and Jesus will, yep, and I'll forgive you and you will have eternal life. The suffering that is alleviated is here and there. There are people in this life who have pain their whole life. There are people, uh, there are famous people who have had accidents and are quadriplegics and God's not healing them yet. God's not healing them yet. God has a plan where every last bit of suffering is going to be alleviated in heaven. No pain. Okay? It talks about no death, but it says no pain six times as many times. Okay? We live in a life of pain. There's no pain in heaven. And there's no death in heaven. And you will always be forever with the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we praise your name that you are a compassionate God, that you came to save us from our sins and to alleviate our suffering. And Lord, we praise you for that. We praise you that you are a God who cares. And I pray that as we read through these passages of Scripture that shows your amazing, mighty power, that we would understand that there will come a day where we will all stand perfectly healed and restored before you for all eternity. Lord, we praise you for this and ask your blessing on the remainder of the day. We ask this through the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.